To say nothing gets built without labor is an understatement, but according to Forbes, over 40% of the U.S. construction workforce is expected to retire over the next decade. Now, the construction industry faces a workforce shortage, according to Associated Builders and Contractors, of 650,000 in 2022. And that was before we passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Obviously, this means every worker is critical, the ones we have now and the ones we hope to find. And that includes the ones that came to our country looking for work. The fact is, without the immigrant and migrant population that comes here seeking work, our problem would be much much bigger. In some states like California and Texas, reliance on foreign-born labor comprises close to 40% of the construction workforce. I was surprised by that. Nationally, in March of 2021, immigrant workers accounted for 24% of the construction workforce. For many insulation contractors, they make up a lot of their team. In fact, some of them may be the key people that keep your operation going. If that's the case, what are the best practices to protect them, to protect your company, or to protect you? This is the one and only, the original podcast where you can find yours and your business's true value. You're listening to Our Value. Brought to you by America's insulation source, IDI Distributors. You want to hear from the best contractors, suppliers, and consultants that dedicate themselves to more than just survival in the business world? Industry professionals that are dedicated to excellence in every aspect of their business? Our Value has them all here to share that same motivation and knowledge with you. Tune in and grow a more successful, profitable, educated, and recognized business. Listen to the Our Value podcast to become the industry leader in your market. Find your value with Our Value. So welcome to the R-Value podcast, where today we're talking with attorney Jorge Molina and the J. Molina Law Firm out of Fort Worth, Texas. And we're talking about immigration, the law, and what you can do to help yourself and your employees. Jorge, welcome to the program. I see you started your firm in 2017. What, what made you choose immigration law? Well, Ken, thank you for the invitation. Um, it's a pleasure being with you. And immigration law sort of picked me. You know, I I feel I, I have a natural proclivity. I was born in California, but um, my parents decided to raise me in Nicaragua. So when I moved to Texas in 2006, I sort of felt like an outsider, as an immigrant almost, even though I am a U.S. citizen. So when I was in law school, immigration law was of high interest to me. And I really like the challenge, right? So careful what you wish for. This is a really challenging <laughs> area of law. So that's that's where, you know, that's how I, I got into the immigration law field. And along the way, I've got some, some tremendous mentors and I've, I've been some good people too. What type of help do most people come to you for? Are they trying to get green cards or accepted into the country or bring in family? What What's the majority of what you do? Well, all of the above and then some. So we're a, uh, we're fully focused in immigration law. So we serve all immigration law needs. So from people trying to bring in their girlfriends or their family from abroad, or if you're fighting, fighting deportation, or if you're fighting the federal government to make sure that they do their job, or if you're an employer, you either want to bring more workers um, to your business, or you want to make sure that the workers that you have can stay in the States, we can do all this work. 
if I'm an employer trying to help one of my best people get citizenship, is there anything I can do to help them? Great, fantastic question, Ken. And by the way, we get this question, I would say every week. Um, every week we have employers for whether it's because they're, they want to help the individual or it just makes good business sense. They want to make sure that they, uh, that they can have this employee in their company for the long term. So often we get these questions as, you know, how can I help this person? And there's different categories. So the more common one is the employer has a, an, an individual who is undocumented and they want to help them out, right? Make sure you can get a work permit, you can become legal in the States, get your social security number, things like that. And unfortunately, the way that our laws are written and they were designed, an employer has very limited things that they can do in that, situ in that situation. If you're here undocumented, you can't change to an employment-based category. Therefore, you need to leave the States. But if you've been here for over one year, you can't come back for 10 years unless you can get a waiver. And only people who are married to U.S. citizens or lawful residents or have parents that are U.S. citizens or lawful residents would be eligible. So unfortunately, many cases we need to say, well, you know, I, I hear you. I wish you could help out. You have the, you know, you have the intent and the, and the proclivity and the inclination to help them out. But unfortunately, there's nothing we can do at this point. Um, some others um, are just trying to that they have a stable workforce, right? And they're, they're, they come to us and say, you know what? I've been trying everything. I advertise online. I have newspapers, my Facebook page. I just can't find enough people. Help me out. Right. So those people, you know, we're able to, um, to help and bring them and help them bring the, the workforce that they need. And also it does depend on the project that they need the help for. And then we also have other individuals that they know that someone is in the country uh, for a very long time, that they have either a green card or work permit, and they just, they're trying to make that green card or work permit more permanent, and they want to see if they can apply for citizenship. And, you know, it's it's always a great feeling when, when you have the employer and the employee um, together, and they're trying to achieve the, the, the same goal. When you look at that, I know there's this long path and we've talked in the past about the number of judges available. Can can you talk about the number of judges versus the caseload that we have out there and what you see typically for, you know, time that you're here before you actually wind up completing your case? Okay, great, great, great question. Um, that touches in several aspects of the system, right? And And this is just one example of how archaic or, you know, unworkable our system is in 2022. So here are the numbers. There is approximately over 1.6 million cases pending in immigration court. Now, there's only about 500 immigration judges around the United States. Now, I'm not really a numbers guy, but if you run the numbers, it's going to take over 10 years just to take care of that backlog. And by the way, every day they're adding more and more and more and more cases. So to answer your question, you know, I don't know how long the average case takes, but the federal government, 
I think that not even the federal government knows how long it takes. And it also depends on where you have your, your court, whether it's in San Francisco or Houston or Dallas, you know, they they have different numbers. Um, the backlogs are different and, you know, usually, um, the bigger the city, the bigger the backlog. Um, but it also depends on the state and who you're working with. Um, you know, if you have a office of the of DHS that's willing to close out some cases that are not, that should not have been in immigration court, or if they're just trying to deport anyone that's within the system. So it really does depend, but anecdotally, I can tell you, you know, from the, from the moment that your case is file in the immigration court to the to the resolution period maybe about five to seven years but this is just one aspect of the immigration law system this is these are individuals who um for one reason or another they end up in immigration proceedings so or excuse me deportation proceedings and so it could be because they you know they made a mistake they committed a criminal act and they ended up in jail and that they were picked up by ICE, or it could have been an asylum seeker um, who was refused by uh, by immigration authorities. So I, I've even seen cases where people, um, you know, come in as students, they didn't pay a fee, um, and then the, they were referred to immigration court. And, you know, it, it seems pretty extreme, but yeah, there's a, there, there's, there's a lot of, of reasons why you can end up there. Wow. So when you look at, you know, they may have five, seven, in some cases, 10 years. Okay. With them pending for so long, what should someone do while they're waiting for their case to come up? First, if your case is pending in immigration court, most likely you're going to be eligible for work authorization. Okay, so if you're in immigration court and then you pass that that first stage where they're determining that, well, you know, there is some form of review, um, you very likely you can request work authorization. So first, if you're eligible, request work authorization. Second, and importantly, and just thinking about the end result, right, or and what you're trying to show. And I, I don't really want to get into the minutia and all the details and stuff, but in essence. Every, in every case, you need to show that you deserve the benefit that you're seeking. So you need to show the judge that you're doing your part. And one of the best ways of doing this is fighting taxes, right? So, you know, regardless of your immigration status, it is a duty of every individual who earns income in the United States to file a tax return. Second, um, show that you you have connections and you have roots in the United States. So how do you show that, right? So maybe you go to church or you're a member of a club, society, association, something like that. Or if you're giving back to your community, say, you know, you're, you're part of a, of a charity organization, something like that. Make sure um, to document that those things. And by documenting, I mean, you know, get letters of support, get photographs, show donations, activities that you've done. If you're involving your children's lives or your nieces and nephews, or you've helped your neighbor, right? Make sure you have a way of showing that. So those, those are some things to, to prepare. Each case is different, but those are some things that we can all do to show that you deserve that benefit that you're seeking. 
I love that. You know, coaching baseball or otherwise. When we first talked about this, I went and I looked up something and I found the most interesting statistics today. It's from uh, American Progress. It says each year undocumented workers in their households pay $12.9 billion in federal tax contributions, $7.7 billion in state and local taxes. They spend $60.7 billion a year. It's incredible. It says these workers uh, or the the employers annually contribute payroll taxes totaling 4.4 billion to social security and medicare and then lastly they said undocumented immigrants working in the construction sector own 393,000 houses paying 3.6 billion in mortgage payments and 11.6 billion in rental payments annually they are a contributing force no matter how we look at it they they are here providing economy so i think that's great um here's another thing to consider those who are undocumented that are paying into the system cannot receive any benefits from the government so they're only putting it in they're not going to get it out so when you look at that because we talked before and there are some people out there trying to I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, take advantage of immigrants. So you talked about doing it fast versus doing it right. Can can you address that a little bit? Yes, right. So it's a, as a, in most things in life, right? So you can have something fast, but likely won't be that good a quality, right? And and and. For example, if you're building a house, you like to have the best materials and maybe it's going to take you longer to find those materials and, and, and to follow the best practices, but you're going to have a better house at the end of the day. Same thing here. Often uh, people fall for you know little offers where someone tells them, well, I can get your work permit right now uh, because you're desperate for it. And they don't realize that by filing what they're filing, they end up in deportation proceedings, for example. Or they decide to take the advice or work with someone who's not a licensed attorney. Tell them, well, you know, you can I can do it for a lot less. And then sort of an expert doing this. And unfortunately, you know, the wrong help can't really hurt. And and we we see that. So you know, as a general rule, just know that for things to, you know, the longer or the, the stronger the benefit, very likely the longer the process. Okay. So if you're trying to sponsor someone for a green card to stay permanently in the United States, very likely it's going to be a process that's going to take at least one year, maybe even more. Maybe some of, for some people, it takes over a decade to get that green card. So before you, you know, start the process, make sure you're consulting with a qualified, experienced immigration attorney uh, who can guide you to uh, through the process. And just be wary of, of people that, you know, just are just interested in taking your money um, because, you know, they're not really going to help you out in the long run. Yeah, I could see where they would see you as disposable because when you're gone, you're gone and they've got your money. So that would be terrible. So for contractors, really, what is the best thing they can do to help the people that work for them? Okay. So for people that work for them, um, 
first, you know, pay attention to what benefits there are available. So for example, if you have a, a young workforce, right. And they could qualify for DACA, this is the program for childhood arrivals. Right. And then you have workers with that, make sure they're reapplying for that. A lot of these benefits require you to reapply every year or every two years. Right. So that's very important. Additionally, if someone has a work permit, make sure that they're renewing it on time. We have a tremendous backlog with immigration right now with renewing work permits. It's taking in some cases over nine, 10 months. So make sure you're, you're trying to renew your work permit at least six months before it expires. Additionally, if there's a program like the new Venezuelan parole program and you have a person you know, from Venezuela or someone related to that, and you need workers, you know, maybe this is a program you, you might be interested in sponsoring some workers for your company, right? Right now, you know, the, the space is very limited, but this is something you can be looking at, um, you know, so in, in essence, you know, get, you know, get power through knowledge. Okay. And so, on the same token, is there anything they should be doing to protect themselves, meaning the employer? Yes. So first off, right, you you must follow federal and state laws, right? So you not hire someone who's undocumented who doesn't have work authorization. Now, if it's a subcontractor and they're not really working for you, that's a different story. And, you know, we all have our, our different hiring practices and, and workforce. However, if, you know, follow, follow the, the rules and, and when you're following the rules, um, you're in a position to help or encourage someone to apply for a benefit that they could qualify for. So, for example, if you, if you have a worker that you know is married to you, a U.S. citizen, encourage them to file a petition. Often, you know, people don't do it because they think it's onerous. It's going to take too long. It's too expensive. I'm OK like this. And then, so they only do it when it's an emergency, they have no other option. But if you know someone is in that situation, it could be eligible for something, encourage them to file. Great, so along the same line of protecting themselves, you know, what about, you know, there's times I'm gonna need someone to drive a rig somewhere or something like that. I've gotta have insurance on my vehicles. What about, yeah having them drive company vehicles or driving or licenses or things like that? Okay, so in 2011, they changed the law in the state of Texas. So a person who is undocumented, who doesn't have immigration status, is not eligible for a driver's license in the state. So you, you need to be wary about that. Additionally, um, in some circumstances, and it does. It's up to the discretion of the police officer. They would accept a foreign driver's license in the state. So, anecdotally, just talking from Cotwell to different police officers, you know, I think that they would accept a foreign license for up to one year. But if someone's really living in the state, you know, that's not really the the document that the police are looking for. However, you are also, um, you, you couldn't see if someone would be eligible to get a driver's license in another state. 
I know that other states don't have that immigration status requirement. I know states like California, New Mexico, Massachusetts, um, Illinois, New York don't require that. But again, you need to follow their rules, right? So they they might not require that, but they're going to require something else. And most of these states will require proof of residence within the state to show that you can get that driver's license. As an employer, is there anything that I should avoid or red flags I should look for that are the normal things that, you know, hey, you want to avoid that? Yeah. So first, you know, don't don't hire anyone who's not allowed to work in the United States. Right. So that follow federal law, follow, you know, the standard procedures. Also be aware of who you're working with. Right. So if your subcontracting matters and things like that. Um, you know, make sure that they're the, the, the people driving the vehicles have the proper documentation like that. Um, importantly, you know, make sure the people who who say that are doing the work are actually the people doing the work. Okay, because many times we have other names, but it's other people doing the work. So, so those are some things that you could bear in mind and be careful about. So. Let's talk just a little bit about what's the worker's goal. One of the things that you said to me at one point really surprised me, and that was, you know, maybe they don't want to dis disassociate from their home country, which, you know, some of these guys from, come from incredibly beautiful places. Most of us are attached to where we grew up. So can you address that as well? Of course. So let's put things into context, right? So during... The 20th century, you know, and, and while the United States was mostly agricultural, we we would import labor uh, labor from Latin America mostly and some Caribbean islands and to do work in the United States temporarily. And what it would how it would work out is that they would come to the United States for certain seasons, so to harvest strawberries, tomatoes, things like that. And then when the season was over, they will go back to their home country. And this was great because we would have mostly young males coming to the U.S., doing the work. And then once the, the season's over, they go back and then they will come back next year to do the work. But this custom was ended approximately in the 1990s when they changed the, the law and the law became a lot harder to follow and, and and there's some major penalties if you came to the United States unlawfully. So the end result about 30 years after the passing of this law is that instead of having individuals who are here to work and are, want to go back home, what you have is family units relocating to the United States because you know we're humans, right? We want to take care of our family, but we also want to have a family. So what's the point of uh, just working here and and not being able to enjoy our family? So that's that's what we're seeing again. And the reality is it's immigrating to a new country and often, you know, having to learn a new language where you don't know many people and you're starting at the bottom. It it is very difficult. Okay. So not it's it's not something that's easily done. So I think that a good strategy 
that we can we can have as a country is just going back to the days where people could come here temporarily, do the work that is required, and then go back home. I think it'll be um, a good way of solving our current labor issues, and then for you know providing good work in the U.S. but allowing these people to go back home and and use that money to help their families where where they want to be. It makes absolute sense. It's almost like we became our own worst enemy with a rule that we passed. And while it probably had tremendous intent, what we did was made it where instead of the individual came, to your point, the whole family came. And you see a lot of things happen like that in our judicial system. You could have a one-page bill that's very simple, and this was our goal, but what you wind up with at the end of that might be a thousand pages, and now you know, no one's really sure that the original intent was made. And so... You know, you brought up the that we could use a very narrow bill to get what we need done. Um, you called it a good neighbor policy. I absolutely love that. You know, give me your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, Ken, um, you know, imagine if you were still working um, with a computer that was um, designed in the 1980s and that you bought in the 1990s. And, you know, would you be able to do your work? Right? So I, I don't think any any one of us would be able to work with a computer that old. And something similar happens with our immigration laws. Our immigration laws were, you know, pretty much thought of in the 1980s, passed in the 1990s. And about 30 years later, um, you know, we know that the system's not working. However... You know, the, every bill that has approached Congress um, has this, you know, very ambitious goal of fixing everything. And, you know, in the I think we should be more practical and be more narrow in approach. And one of the things that we can do is incorporate business interests into the into the bills. And one of this. Um, you know, good ideas is having a, and a, I will, you know, it's nice to think of it as the good neighbor bill because it implies two things, right? So it's a two-way street. It means that the person coming in needs to act right and, you know, earn this privilege. So act like a good neighbor. And at the same time, we also act as a good neighbors. We we make sure that we're following our own labor laws and, and rules and that we are, um, you know, working to for everyone's benefit and not trying to take advantage of, of everyone. So I think that that is something that could be tremendous, um, with tremendous help for the at least for the labor shortage that we're seeing right now. I totally agree. I think it's, you know, one of the only ways to make things fair and equitable. And to your point, you know, a good neighbor is always going to treat you well. They're going to give you what they've promised and things like that. And, you know, it, it's really one of those where we need them, to your point. We, we've got to do things that are going to help us get this done. So in that vein, 
Do you have uh, yourself, do you have any resources? I know you've got a blog and a tremendous YouTube. Do you have resources for contractors looking to help their workers? Absolutely. So first, you know, where you, you can always come in uh, for a consultation when you talk about the individual case and see what your options are. Always happy to meet with people and, and guide you for your specific case. Additionally, like you mentioned, we had the blog and um and a youtube channel and by the way um we're planning on developing a a workshop for contractors because listen at the end of the day there are certain things that are available right now under in the law but this requires if, if we're going to be serious about these issues and we're going to be innovative and smart and, and find good solutions we're going to need congress to do its job and unfortunately, we have um, people in Congress that are more concerned in keeping their job than to leading the way and finding solutions. So they require nudging and, you know, co the community's input. So one of the things that we like to do is just developing a, you know, tools. It, I call it workshop for contractors to how to reach out to their local representative and and let them know that this is an important issue that they would like congress to help them solve this problem and that this is something important and it's not really a matter of, of politics but it's a matter of common sense and and being practical about the realities we we're facing so we're working on developing this workshop um, it should be available in our website and it will you know help contractors and other employers reach out to their members of Congress and ask them to help out in these matters. I think that is a fantastic idea, and I cannot wait for you to get it done. In fact, uh, once you do that, Jorge, please let me know. I will make sure that we put that in the newsletter and do what we can to promote it through the industry. I totally agree that, you know, the only way we're going to get representation is to kind of serve it up to them and then hope that that's kept to a minimal. So anything or to a minimum, I should say, but anything that we can do to move that forward because of the retirement in the industry, the needs of the industry, I think it's really important to get that done. And I'll tell you, I cannot thank you enough for the time that you've taken, the information you've given our contractors today. Uh, I sincerely appreciate it, Jorge. Well, Ken, thank you for the invitation. And it's been a pleasure and my regards to the audience. Wonderful. Well, uh, you said it one time on uh, one of our breaks when we were talking, but, you know, it's just like having oil and never drilling for it. We have a tremendous resource to the South. All we've got to do is tap into it. And, you know, I want to credit you for saying that. I, I really think that's a very wise statement and decision. So, again, thank you for your time. I hope you all the best. Uh, again, you work nationwide, correct? Because it's federal rather than state law? Correct. So nationwide and by the way, around the world. So we have clients from around the world and all throughout the United States. Well, we look forward to talking to you again and hearing more about this workshop. Until then, thanks so much. And for all of you out there in our value podcast land, thank you for listening. Thank you for doing what you do for our industry. We're so glad you're going out and making a difference every day. Everyone at IDI appreciates you, and we look forward to earning your business every day. <laughs>